The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, June 30th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I am here to talk about the wealth of nations and the wealth of the individual components of those nations. U.S. is the nation in question, and 31 out of 33 banks passed a stress test, meaning they are healthy enough to avoid going under and requiring a bailout should there be a downturn in the economy. Downturn? What could be a downturn? Brexit. Brexit hurt the U.K.'s credit rating and the currency. But you know, if you look at the FTSE, which is their stock market index, stocks seem to have recovered all their losses after the shocking vote. But here's what I want to point out. Let's say you, an American investor, you invested in a British company, Sir Humphrey Dumblebum Spotted Dick Consortium, LLC. And a share in Sir Humphrey's Dick was worth 100 pounds a week ago. And now it's worth 102 pounds. Congratulations. You just made two pounds per share of Dick. Aha. But 100 pounds was worth $150 a week ago, and it's now worth $135. So depending on all these other factors, if you're invested in the British stock market, you might not be doing so great. And I don't put much stock in one or two days of stock markets or even a fortnight's result or even an Antantwig's result. We'll see how the whole Brexit thing plays out, if Britain even gets out of the EU. But I want to note something going on on this this side of the Atlantic. U.S. companies are doing generally well. Earnings are up. Why? They would say efficiencies, the strong dollar, the business climate, but I've got a better one. They're lying about their earnings. So there's something called the GAAP, the GAAP, and the GAAP stands for Generally Accepted Accounting Practice. So guess how many of the 500 companies in the S&P 500 adhere to the Generally Accepted Accounting Practices? It's 29, 29 out of 500. That is 5.7% or calculating with non-GAAP methods, 95%. But seriously, if only 5.7% of companies use generally accepted accounting practices, guess what? They're not generally accepted. They're widely rejected. U.S. companies are using trap, totally rejected accounting practices. No, wait, it's more like crap, crooked, rotten accounting practices. And they put a price tag on it. Totally rejected accounting practices caused companies overall to overstate net income a combined $164 billion last year. I mean, I guess it's okay. What are we going to do? It seems like we generally accept that level of chicanery. On the show today, Boris Exit. But first, you know Wyatt Cenac from The Daily Show, and he also hosts The Night Train, which is a live show in Gowanus in Brooklyn. And now he's taking Night Train comedy, really a cavalcade. When you talk comedy, you got to use the word cavalcade. He's taking this cavalcade onto the CISO network, and there you see Wyatt and all his funny friends cracking wise, doing skits, and, well, I have a theory as to who he aspires to be. Just listen. For four and a half years, Wyatt Cenac was a writer and correspondent on The Daily Show, and now he has a new 
comedy cavalcade, we'll call it, but not but spell neither of those with a K on the CISO network. It's called Night Train. Wyatt's here. How you doing, Wyatt? I'm doing all right. Thank you. All right. Yeah, let's spell comedy and cavalcade correctly. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Night Train. There's so many CrossFit locations in Brooklyn. Like, that is a form of gentrification I was not prepared for. Like, I liked my gentrification when it was just like ladies with cat glasses and people who make bacon-flavored ice cream. It was not, I did not in any way expect it to turn into like upwardly mobile, really strong people. who could push me out of my neighborhood physically. So I guess the easiest way to explain Littlefield and the show you've been doing, Night Train, to explain it is just to list the kind of comedians that are on the show, and we could certainly do that. But what are ways that have nothing to do with you saying the names of comedians? How would you explain it to uh, my mom's friend who's like, oh, yeah, I've heard of Wyatt Snack. What's the show like? Sure. Uh, To your mom's friend, I would say it's very nice to meet you. Um, He's a polite young man. This yeah. helps with that demographic, the mom's yeah. friend demo. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of overlap between my fans and friends of your mom. Yeah, <laughs> which sounds like an insult in a weird way. It's or like, not. Yeah. So I would, I would describe the show as a stand-up showcase, and so we usually have a bunch of other stand-up comedians on the show, but then there's a little bit of a variety element. So we have. Occasionally musicians will come on or any weird idea in my brain that I can sort of put together over the course of a week. And But with that asterisk, if you can execute it within a week, you don't want to spend too much time on this. We're still doing it at a rock club in, in the middle of Brooklyn yeah. in, in an area of Brooklyn called Gowanus. Gowanus, for people outside of Brooklyn, is a highly polluted canal. I guess they're saying it's less polluted now. But the point is, if Broadway's the Great White Way, Gowanus is the floating with algae canal. And you know, the juxtaposition of that with huge production values wouldn't make sense. Right. And yeah. Gowanus, the thing that Gowanus was very famous for for a long time was that the canal was so polluted that I believe a whale swam into it. Couldn't, it was so polluted it couldn't figure out how to get out of it and possibly died. And that also – they don't know. Yeah. It's a myth of the whale of yeah. Gowanus. Yeah. And then also some students once tested the water to see what was in it and they discovered that the water tested positive for gonorrhea, <laughs> which is true. Those are two true things about the Gowanus Canal. So, yeah, that is where we do the show, near a body of water that suffers from gonorrhea – so there's another element. There are a few other elements to the show. You, so you have uh, – you've done – I'm not going to say at all a version of Hamilton, but there was a uh, – Cleveland existed on the show. Sure, this yes. Gro- a Grover Cleveland musical. Sure, yeah. Uh, you yeah. can say we were inspired by Hamilton. Okay, there was a little Hamilton inspiration. Uh, there was uh, a lot. I, <laughs> look, I've seen how successful that show is. Those tickets are going for a lot of money. I'm honestly surprised that more people aren't making hip-hop historical musicals. There are a lot of founding fathers to go around. Yeah. That, that's the only guy who adheres to a rhyme scheme? I yeah. doubt it. No. Yeah. No. You can you can rhyme a lot with Franklin mm-hmm. and 
we just chose Cleveland. Yeah. And that kind of goes to more of the variety show aspect of it. And so that was that was kind of the thought process going into the show. Also, if you were hosting a late night show, you know, obviously all the hosts come out with uh, a monologue. Seth does his at his desk, but there's a monologue. So that's host as comedian. But then host becomes interviewer. You never stop being comedian. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. When I was starting out, that was always – the role nobody wanted. That was the worst slot. MC, and then you rise to middle act, and then you rise to headliner. Yeah. So the MC, the guy who has to do probably the hardest job, work the crowd, introduce everyone, that's the lowest rung on the totem pole. Right. And yeah. you really have to set the table. And when I was doing shows where, you know, in LA, you'd go to the improv, and so there'd be eight or nine comics on a lineup, and whoever was the MC for the night, it's really such a challenge because it's not about your set. And if you have a terrible set, the next three or four comics hate you because you've just given them such a hole to dig themselves out of. And it's usually not until three or four comics that the audience then feels warmed up. And so that's what I I found challenging about doing the show in general. But now, having done it for a while and doing it for the digital series, I still get to be silly and weird. And with certain comedians, I'll jump back out during their sets and yell things. Yes. And, and there's a little, uh, a little like balcony, right? An awning built onto the set where you sometimes hang out and heckle. Sort of and heckle Waldorf and Statler style. Yes, it's uh, it's there's a little bit of that. It's where I should be walking away, but sometimes I linger. Yeah. Now I was thinking of that, and I wrote in my notes Waldorf and Statler, and then you know we see backstage elements. You're the host, and the most important thing. I'm like well, you know what? I don't know if I'm the most important. Well, thing. I think that you're omnipresent. You're in every episode, and and then I it hit me. This is the Muppet Show. It has all the elements of the Muppet Show. We get to know the on stage, we get to know the off stage. You're there heckling. You've created a Muppet show. Well, thank you. That's at the Gowanus Canal. Yeah, I'm sure if we all fell into the Gowanus Canal, we would all come back out as Muppet <laughs> versions of ourselves. And I think there is, to a certain degree, I, I think there is something in that. And yeah, that's I've I've always wanted to. I, I always, as a kid, wanted to work at the Muppet Show, and I wanted to work and get to live in one of those rooms. In your conception, would there be a hierarchy? So you, as a human, like with the Muppets dictate to you? Would there be a separation? The Muppets would go out and, you know, cavort with themselves and the humans would be I saw left it, out? No, I think I saw it more as, you know, Kermit maybe brought me in with the idea that if the if he was going to pass the torch on, because uh-huh. you can't trust Scooter. No. Scooter, Scooter. Never trust a guy whose eyes are built into his glasses. No. I say. No. Do you think, now one of the things you just mentioned is the inevitability of comparing one comedian to another and then the phenomenon the the MC doesn't do a great job and the next three suffer a couple things I thought that of all the arts stand up was the one it was the most cutthroat even among the stand ups not when you get to a certain point but especially early on there's just less collaboration it has to do with a lot of things you're alone on stage it's kill or be killed and all that but do you think some of it is just the structure of how we've always done stand-up, how a stand-up comedy club works. There is just some built-in tension where one performer won't necessarily want to collaborate with another performer. Maybe what you're doing at Night Train is correcting that a little? I think it's definitely changed, and I I, I can't take credit for that. I think I think it was changing before, before me, and 
I, I definitely think there was a a high level of competition. You're talking seventies, eighties, maybe even the nineties, because stage time was so precious. There were so few clubs, and if you got on a if you got on a show at a club, and then the right booker saw you, you could do the Tonight Show, and then you could live off of that for a while on the road or wherever, or maybe you get a sitcom or something. And now I feel like when I started doing stand-up in Los Angeles, there was the improv, there was the store, there was the Laugh Factory, but then there were all these little bars. There you know, was M-Bar, which had all these shows that grew out of that, like Comedy Death Ray was a show and Uncabaret, and then just little bars around town and eventually Meltdown comic books had this space in the back and they started a show and it felt like, oh, you can go anywhere and it got weirdly segregated stylistically and ethnically too but that sort of calmed everybody down where now all of a sudden oh, okay if you perform at m bar and you're there a lot you can exist in that world and that might be different than the traditional like club comic that's maybe a little more like attacking the audience. Yeah. They can all live in one space together and they, I think, then wind up looking out for each other. It may be one of the few times that segregation has actually created something that allowed for people to to find their voice. Yeah. Their it voices an ecosystem. Yeah. This is not a pro-segregation conversation <laughs> outside in any way. But in this one instance, as it relates to comedy, stylistic segregation wound up helping create a then more unified comedy community. But to get back to the idea, the ethnic segregation idea, uh, like <laughs> – Wait, hold on. To get Let's... back to your your stated goal of resegregating our society. <laughs> I just want to make America great again. <laughs> implied as it is in your Wikipedia page. No, but – so it was segregated ethnically and whatever alt comedy is was mostly a white thing. It seemed for a while. But now that True. maybe it isn't or you're trying to show – are you trying to show that it isn't or are you are trying to change it? Well, I know when we started doing the show, we didn't want it to just be a homogenous sort of, oh, all just a bunch of straight white dudes and then one – minority. Yeah. Every venue that I did when I was coming up, I was the extra. I it was a lineup of a lot of white dudes and then me, maybe a lady. And when the lady was introduced, she was introduced as who's ready for a lady. <laughs> and to me, there was some aspect of Let's maybe Benetton this thing a little bit. So I've seen you host Night Train, but I once went a couple years ago, and it was hosted by Harry. Harry Kondabolu. Harry and his brother, too. They Ashok, were yeah. co-hosting. Yeah. Uh, Hannibal Burris was there. This was months before his video was posted about Bill Cosby, and he did the material. And he said, I didn't even know what I was talking about. And he was talking about, you know, fuck you, Bill Cosby, telling me to pull up my pants with this rape stuff. And I, I, I looked to my friend, and I'm like, this is amazing. Did you know he was doing that stuff? And were you upset that he was – I don't know if he was doing it while you hosted ever. Were you ever on a bill with him doing that material? I'd heard him – I'd heard him, I think, do that. But yeah, it, there was never any thought. I, I think that's what's kind of fun about 
the show and especially a lot of the Brooklyn shows is that you have these spaces to work on stuff. And what was fascinating about that with that situation with Hannibal was just that at some point was probably going to make its way into a special of his. Right. Had it not already been like uploaded to YouTube. And so I think, I think there was something that was weird about that because there's always this idea of burning material. Yes. Once you put it on, on television, it's, you know, once it's on screen, you feel like you don't want to repeat it on screen again. But what I was thinking about it is as much as comedians say, well, it's true, you know, comedy is really important and satire is really important. Maybe the best thing you could do with satire is change an audience member's mind. Maybe like I don't think comedy's ever changed the course of the Bush administration. But no. this changed. I mean, this really got the ball rolling on all these Cosby prosecutions. I mean, but for Hannibal doing that and it catching fire, I don't know that we'd be where we are with Cosby charged in a court of law in Pennsylvania. Have you ever seen anything with a real world effect like that? But I guess the question then is, is that Hannibal or is that, you know, Hannibal wasn't the one writing the various blog posts about it. Hannibal wasn't the one who released the footage. He he didn't have any agency over, over this conversation where it went. He was just another piece in what was already a snowball going down a hill that was picking up size. See, okay. I think I, I look at it differently. To, I, I thought it was always out there. I thought the stuff was written about on blog sites, but until Hannibal did it, he was the spark. He was the concentrating. There's, yeah, I mean, there's an argument to be made that, yeah, there, you know, he was a catalyzing effect, but also that this is a time in which... Mm-hmm. What we demand and expect of people and how we treat each other has also changed and that the things that people could get away with 20, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, we do not have the patience for and and that changed. Jokes plus zeitgeist equal <laughs> impact. Night Train is the new Wyatt Cenac curated, hosted, shot through with Cenacian series on CISO. I liked Muppet Show. Yeah, the new Muppet Show for a new era without as much felt and, you know, abutting a gonorrhea-filled body of water. That's the nice thing I could say to anyone. I think that's, yeah. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel, hitherto ascendancy. Many Brits could not stand Boris Johnson, and apparently he is among them. The former mayor of London, former big-time promoter of the Leave campaign, and a pioneer in straw-to-pay technology, shocked the English establishment today by standing down for the job of Conservative Party leader and therefore head of the British government. Boris Johnson is skilled at argument and rhetoric. He is trained in it. He is a journalist who gained fame penning newspaper editorials, which are not required to actually become British policy, 
though they are required to adequately pick up dog feces. Boris's accomplishments in the fight against dog feces were one of the things he left off his resume in a lengthy speech that he made today leading up to his shocking announcement. But first, he spent 10 minutes touting how he brought down everything in London from poverty to crime to deaths by fire. And then Johnson went on to employ a fire hose of a metaphor right here. A time not to fight against the tide of history, but to take that tide at the flood and sail on to fortune. And he even made dinner recommendations, steering diners away from that British delicacy, the wobbly quail. This is not a time to quail. It is not a crisis, nor should we see it as an excuse for wobbling or self-doubt. Johnson continued on at one point using the word hitherto points for that. And the stem finally winded its way down to here. But I must tell you, my friends, you who have waited faithfully for the punchline of this speech. And so the baby polar bear turns to the father polar bear and says, because I'm fucking freezing. No, wait, wait, that wasn't the punchline. You who have waited faithfully for the punchline of this speech. You walk him and pitch to the rhino. No, no, that wasn't the punchline. The punchline of this speech. Whilst you gentlemen were sleeping, I ate the bologna. Actually, here was his punchline. I have concluded that person cannot be me. The pauses, the drama, you can fairly hear the sound effects that he wanted to play right in that sentence. I have concluded that person cannot be me. But it wound up sounding a little more like that person cannot be me. Why not? Why can't it be him? Well, there are a few reasons. He seems to have been stabbed in the back by fellow conservative MP Michael Gove. Gove is standing for prime minister. We don't have tape from him from today. We do have him a few years ago, though. I could not be prime minister. I'm not equipped to be prime minister. I don't want to be prime minister. I could not, would not be PM. I'm not equipped. Then again, Johnson, it has been reported, wasn't a true leave believer. He liked campaigning for leave. He wanted to cynically push the levers of politics. He wanted to play with the emotions of voters by advocating leave. The only problem was he never really wanted to leave. The leave true believers wanted a bona fide leave man running things. Oh, another theory goes that conservatives actually don't want to leave. They prefer to go with the woman who is now the odds-on favorite to lead the conservatives and become the next prime minister, Theresa May. Theresa May backed Remain. In fact, if you go by certain naming conventions, Theresa May's nickname should be The Remain. All right, that was a stretch, but so was Boris Exit. But my theory of why Boris is leaving is that he is a clever, clever man, an exceedingly clever man. And he sees where Brexit has Britain headed. He knew it was good for him to advocate Brexit's passage and good for him to avoid its implementation. Beware the cook who refuses to sip his own soup or to use a more American idiom. Making a shit sandwich is one thing. Taking a bite is something else. That's it for today's show. Afim Shapiro follows Gafifim producing practices generally exceptional, filling in for Mary. 
Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, and Andy Bowers, as well as your humble correspondent, in summer we all follow Gibaquisos practices, generally ignored but actually quite important sunscreen on scalp practices. The gist, a signer of the O Ocean Hay Accords, out of control excessive acronyms never hurt anyone yet. Um Peru, de Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening.